This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde points out that it's totally okay to break laws in England. Just ask the MPs who make them. Features writer Simon Hattonstone talks to Booker Prize winning author Douglas Stewart about tough starts and successful reinventions. Imogen West Knights wonders if we have reached peak side plate. And finally, writer Stuart Jeffries asks, can the soaps ever win viewers back? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we jump in, a quick warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now. As Jacob Rees-Mogg beguiled us yet again by leaping heroically to the defence of Boris Johnson over Partygate on LBC this week, Marina Hyde couldn't help noticing these endlessly pious lectures about moving on. The overall impression being that following the rules is strictly for other people. This piece is read by Emma Stannard. Another day, another tranche of Partygate fines from the police. You'll have heard the adage that politics is showbiz for ugly people. So let's be real. The Conservative Party's reaction to law-breaking in Downing Street is the Oscar slap for ugly people. Think back to what we saw on our TVs. A whole class of pretentious narcissists, so terminally in hoc to a corrupt system of golden job offers and preferment, that any moral code could only ever take a distant second place to the impulse to worshipfully close ranks. And Hollywood's no better. Every day, ministers who go on the airwaves to defend Boris Johnson over Partygate are doing the equivalent of the standing ovation in the Dolby Theatre, a community of hilariously absurd people rising to their feet and applauding someone they know full well has behaved appallingly. Because... Because what? Because some things are more important? Bollocks. They're applauding because they're totally ridiculous and vain people. Those who felt slapped in the face when the multiple party stories first emerged just have to suck it up. We're all Chris Rock now. 
I'm only waiting for religious wingnut Jacob Rees-Mogg to claim that the devil comes for prime ministers when they're at their highest. This week, it emerged that the government's former ethics chief has been fined for attending a law-breaking karaoke party at which there was apparently a drunken brawl. You laugh, but she'll probably get a Grammy for talking about it next year. With each endlessly pious lecture that we should move on, ministers cleave closer to the characteristics of the remote Hollywood entertainment elite who are forever chiding the little people to look away from their foibles. This trend has been visible for a while. It's not just things like Boris Johnson taking a private jet from his own climate conference. Has anything more preposterously Tinseltown ever happened? But the constant expectation that politicians should be allowed to grow, despite holding positions of huge power and responsibility. Cut them some slack, they are works in progress. In fact, it feels more like they are trying to eliminate the very idea of disgrace. The overall impression is that we are governed by people to whom the usual rules do not apply, because they are special, like celebrities. They are an elite community, unmoored from the constraints by which normal people abound. Even their outside politics behaviour appears to becoming more celeby. With increasing regularity, one or other MP issues a non-apology apology, or some mad health advice, or a statement responding to accusations of reprehensible behaviour in a self-pityingly modern fashion. On Sunday, a Conservative MP called David Warburton was accused of sexual assault and pictured allegedly posing next to some cocaine. He has denied any wrongdoing. On Monday, it was announced that he had checked into a psychiatric hospital suffering from severe shock and stress. I see. I know I have to say I'm sorry he's in a state and everything, but this is a man accused of multiple incidents of sexual misconduct. I can't help but remember that Harvey Weinstein's reaction to a number of accusations was to seclude himself in some kind of Arizona head spa. As Harvey put it to reporters shortly before being admitted, You know what? We all make mistakes. Second chance, I hope. Warburton was, of course, suffering from the severe shock and stress of being found out. I say found out but it turns out that Conservative whips were informed of some of the women's allegations against Mr Warburton two weeks ago, but did not take action against him, a modus operandi which will be familiar to those who know how hard Hollywood works to protect its menfolk. I wonder which politician will be next to check into the equivalent of somewhere called Pathways or Meadowlands, following an incident or incidents that to ordinary people simply looks like rotten behaviour and not something that can be conveniently clinicalised because you're in a hole. I wouldn't give it long before some MP reacts to being caught bang to rights by entering a clinic for sex addiction, at which point it'll be mandatory to salute him and say we hope he finds the space to work on himself. As Chaz Michael Michaels observes in Blades of Glory, it's a real disease with doctors and medicine and everything. The era of a disgraced politician looking contritely over their garden gate while their wife wears a rictus is evermore passé. Still, there's such a fine line, isn't there, between progress 
and evading responsibility. Consider the parliamentary rise of another Hollywood favourite, aggressive lawsuits. Only in the past fortnight, long after he was handed a jail sentence for sex offences against two women, did the former Tory MP Charlie Elphick finally drop his four-year libel claim against the Sunday Times over the story that a woman had told the Tory whips and police that he had raped her, but investigators had taken no action. And yet, for all their showbiz tricks, it still feels truly mad that ministers are out there defending lawbreaking by the people that made the laws. Not just any laws, the most draconian restrictions on freedom in peacetime, which saw people unable to be with their loved ones as they died horrible deaths alone, and all the other horrendous things a whole lot of British citizens have not moved on from, whatever their progressive overlords might wish. Every elite hypocrisy or plea for special treatment suggests these politicians are becoming more and more detached from those they are supposed to represent, most of whom have moved on to a cost-of-living crisis in which personal growth has become an unaffordable luxury. After his calamitous spring statement, it feels completely apt that Chancellor Rishi Sunak should be spending his Easter holiday in Santa Monica, Hopefully, he'll go the whole hog and spend New Year in Aspen with Barry Diller. As for how these various pretensions will go down with the electorate, I imagine quite badly in the circumstances. Nobody goes to the movies to watch stuff like this. Are ordinary people allowed to go to a clinic for having to choose between heating and eating? Can they justify law-breaking on the basis that laws are, as Rees Mogg whined on behalf of the Prime Minister, unkind and inhuman? No. Or to put it another way, this high-status behaviour by a governing party is increasingly unrelatable. That's a problem. People don't accept being told what to do by hypocritical Hollywood stars. And unless politicians realise, without exception, that they are subject to the same rules, people eventually won't accept being told what to do by them either. That was, it's totally okay to break laws in England. Just ask the MPs who make them, by Marina Hyde. Read by Emma Stannard. Next, after his debut novel about a gay boy in 80s Glasgow took the literary world by storm, author Douglas Stewart is once again drawing on his own childhood for his second book, Young Mungo. Here, Simon Hattonstone explores what it means, despite the grinding formative years, to finally be invited to the literary conversation. A word of warning, this article touches on mental health issues and suicide. Read by Bill Petrie. After Shuggy Bane was published, Douglas Stewart prepared to pack in writing and go back to the day job. He spent 10 years on his debut novel, then it came out during a pandemic. It was the first week of lockdown. I thought, God... This is the end of my publishing career. Stuart couldn't complain. It had received fabulous reviews, even if nobody was buying it. And he knew he could walk straight back into a top job in fashion. Then Shuggy got nominated for the Booker Prize and America's National Book Award for Fiction. In fact, between 2020 and 2021, it was shortlisted for well over 20 major awards. 
Not bad for a book that had been rejected by more than 40 publishers. It went on to win the Booker, which inevitably boosted sales. But here was something different. A novel that had been considered inaccessible and unmarketable was selling by the shelf load in supermarkets. To date, it has sold more than 1.3 million copies in the English language alone. This brutal love story about a young gay boy trying to protect his alcoholic mother from herself and the ravages of the world, partially written in the Scottish vernacular, had huge popular appeal. Perhaps even more remarkable, Stuart had not read a book for pleasure until he was 16. We meet at a basement bar in the East Village in Lower Manhattan, where Stuart, who is 45, has lived for the past 21 years. Life couldn't be more different from the high-rise blocks and tenements where he grew up in Glasgow. It's here that he made a success of himself as a fashion designer for Calvin Klein and Banana Republic. Here that he earned more money than he ever thought possible. And here that he married the man who has been his partner since he was 20. And yet it is Glasgow that continues to define him, not least in his second novel, Young Mungo, published later this month. Stuart's accent is still distinctly Scottish, but more refined than I'd expected, certainly more so than his characters, most of whom speak in a raw Glaswegian slang. Has America softened the accent? Possibly a little, he says. But the way he speaks is largely down to his mother. She was a proud woman who insisted that he spoke the Queen's English. She thought regional accents would hold back your kids, that if you wanted to do well, you had to talk like a BBC newscaster. So as a kid, I just sounded a bit weirder than the kids around me. Did they bully him for the way he spoke? He laughs. They hardly needed that as an excuse, he says. From the age of six, they taunted him. They thought I was queer because I liked dolls, my little pony and singing and dancing. And if you gave me a bit of space, I'd twiddle. But actually, the reason they thought I was gay is because I didn't play football. Every day somebody would call me a piffy wee bastard. I didn't quite know what they meant but I knew I should feel ashamed about it. By this time, he was already the adult in the house. His sister and brother were 15 and 13 years older and had left home. He would undress his mother when she was too drunk to do it herself, brush out the knots from her hair, make sure she was eating enough, getting bed to warm her up, try to protect her from abuse and gossip, and give her the love she was so desperately missing in her life. The parent and child relationship from when I was about six was inverted totally. I had to miss school all the time. I had a really disrupted education. His father had left when Stuart was four. He saw him only twice after that. He was a serial philanderer, and his mother remained hopelessly in love with him. One of my formative memories is of him leaving. That's what escalated her drinking. In a way, my father killed my mother. It just took 12 more years for her to die from her alcoholism. Stuart's mother did any number of jobs to keep the family going, in a chip shop, petrol station, cleaning houses. Ultimately, it was the combination of addiction and searing unemployment under Margaret Thatcher that left the family dependent on benefits. In the early days, he says, she was such fun. She wanted nothing more than to have a house full of friends and kids. She was really popular, which makes her disintegration harder to bear. What did she drink? anything. If she had enough money, she drank vodka. If she didn't, she drank fortified lager. 
special brew or tenants. Nasty. His mother was beautiful, and however low she sank, she always looked immaculate, just like Shuggy's mother Agnes Bain. She so wanted the family to be cultured that she created an illusion of bookishness in their home. We had shelves of books that looked like Henry James or Thomas Hardy, but they were just facades. Like a blockbuster video cover, except they were all burgundy leatherette or embossed plastic. Would he have been able to write Shuggy Bean if his mother had still been alive? I don't think I could have, because Shuggy is about loss and grief, so I wouldn't have had the impetus. I didn't just want to conjure up hardship and the pain of loving someone with addiction, but also the wonderful small things, her pride, her resilience, her dignity, her glamour. I wouldn't have needed to have written it if my mother had still been alive. It was only after winning the booker that Stuart started to think of himself as an author. When I woke up the next day, I thought, that's it. Until that point, I'd been thinking, I've got to go and get a job. Writing full-time has certainly paid off. Young Mungo has taken him only two years and is every bit as good as Shuggy Bain. The novel follows schoolboys Mungo, named after the patron saint of Glasgow, and James, as they fall in love in a macho environment where any hint of homosexuality is stamped out. Literally, Mungo's older brother Hamish outdoes train spotting's Begbie on brutality. A parallel story describes Mungo's traumatic fishing trip with two older men. The astonishing thing is that, as with Shuggy Bane, despite the book being soaked in horror, it's the tenderness that wins out in the end. Stuart's language is fantastically cinematic. We don't read Shuggy Bane and young Mungo so much as see them. He'll sicken us with cruelty in one paragraph, move us to tears the next, have us belly laughing by the end of the page. The books are emotional roller coasters, just as his childhood was. Sometimes I'd come home, and my mum would be having a party. Sometimes her head would be in the oven. Twelve years of living with an alcoholic, there were very few scenarios I didn't see. What did you do when her head was in the oven? I just took it out and hoped she was all right. Suicide was always a huge worry. I often found she could be four different types of drunk in a night. Fun, then really dangerous, then sad then suddenly come to life like a revenant. It's terrifying for a kid dealing with all those personalities. And sometimes she was fine. We finish our beers and head off to a nearby restaurant. Even on a cold, wet night, New York seems exotic. As a child, did he ever imagine living here? He smiles. I was a kid who hadn't even been to Edinburgh, so that would have been a strange concept for me. He pauses. It sounds like a piety. But I think of Glasgow as my home, and New York is where I am, and where I work. We get to the restaurant and it's shut. Stuart looks peeved and slightly embarrassed. He says, there's another good place we can go to. As he talks, I make a note in my recorder that he's stylishly dressed in an understated way, all black. Navy blue, he tells the recorder. Douglas pays attention to these things. The second restaurant is also shut. Fucking hell, he says. Now you've really stumped me. Let's just have a bit of a walk. So we wander around looking for food, trying to convince ourselves we're not freezing. By the time Stuart was 16, his mother was dead. Soon after, his aunt took him aside. 
She asked how I was and I said I feel sad and lost. She said, what you have to understand is everybody's got a sad story. What she was telling me was, you have to pick yourself up and get on, because people are visited by tragedy all the time. After his mother's death, Stuart got a job, moved into a bedsit, started reading prodigiously and put himself through college. I was going there all day and working every night in Texas home care, straightening the aisles of paint. Since his early teens, he'd been aware he was gay. Marty Pella was my sexual awakening. I had a huge crush on him. He told his brother and sister and was shocked to find they were shocked. He'd assumed they knew. After all, the whole community had been telling him he was gay since he was six. I asked if his brother is as hard as young Mungo's Hamish. No, he was nothing like that. I was super close to my brother. He died in a motorcycle accident when I was 21. Stuart was the first person in his family to complete school. He had wanted to do a degree in English, but his supportive head teacher suggested he would struggle because he had discovered his love of literature so recently. So he found himself the only boy to complete the degree course at the Scottish College of Textiles in Galashiels, a town in the borders. Money, or lack of it, meant he was still an outsider. He was the only student who couldn't afford to live in the halls of residence. But for the first time in his life, he says, he felt relaxed in the company of others. Going to an all-female textile college did huge things for my self-confidence. I felt safe. I wasn't compared with other men. My sexuality was never questioned. I was just in this place where we were all laughing, creating textiles. It was a pretty sleepy, snoozy place. We're knitting, weaving, embroidering. It's not sexy. It's not disco lights. He loved it. The college organised an exchange trip for him to Philadelphia, on which he met his future husband, Michael Carey. Now an art curator for the Gagosian in New York. The minute I met him, I fell in love. Stuart describes the young Michael as Kurt Cobain meets Morrissey. He sounds so proud when he talks about him, almost boastful. My husband is incredibly handsome, incredibly kind, polite, and has no hidden agenda. I felt very safe around him, very loved. For four years they conducted a long-distance romance. Stuart returned to Gala Shields, completed his degree, then did a master's at the Royal College of Art in London. We find an open restaurant and take a seat under a Covid canvas with heaters blazing overhead. It's like a tanning salon. I can have them turn it down, he says. At the age of 24, Stuart headed back to America, Michael and the fashion industry, starting as an assistant at Calvin Klein and ending up as vice president of design at Kate Spade, establishing himself as a knitwear expert in the process. When you're younger and you start to climb the ranks, it feels really exciting. You have more money and nice holidays. But I got to a point where it was not scratching my creative itch. In fashion, so much is ephemeral. With these international brands, you create stuff after stuff after stuff. But people don't remember it. None of it felt as if it mattered. There was still something nagging away at him. He began to realise he had not dealt with his mother's death. He had simply buried his grief and his childhood along with it. That's what made me sit down at 32 and write a book, because I've never spoken about it. He had not even told his husband what his childhood was really like. He read the first draft and had no idea most of this stuff happened. 
Shuggy was a way for him to understand poverty, Thatcherism, addiction, because I had no other way to explain it to him. The wine waiter arrives. I'll take something red, but not too jammy, or sweet, or sickly, he says. Uh, And is it possible to turn the heaters down a bit? He points to his head. I don't want to upset other people, but this bald guy feels like he's a crispy ham. Our neighbours thank him. They're boiling too. Stuart is a mix of confident and assertive, apologetic and self-conscious. When we speak, it's a month until Young Mungo is published, and he is anxious. I think there's an enormous amount of pressure once you win the booker with your debut. People are going to come to your work with a different critical lens, or begin to rebalance accounts, or see if you've really got the stuff. So you worry about that. But the diffidence soon disappears, eclipsed by his passion for his novel. It's about performative masculinity. Young boys who are being asked to be violent, to be sexualised, to lower their expectations. Young Mungo is set in a post-Thatcher wasteland of 1992, where older men are unemployed and emasculated, younger men see no point in trying to get a job, so they sell drugs, and Catholic and Protestant kids throw bricks at each other as they vie for sectarian supremacy. At the heart of the book is the relationship between Mungo and James. Stuart captures brilliantly the intensity fumbling clumsiness and innocence of first love. Is this the relationship Stuart wanted as a teenager? I would have loved it, he says. But when he was growing up in 80s and 90s Glasgow, he says there was no sense that this was a possibility. The threat of physical and sexual abuse is omnipresent in the novel. I asked if he was sexually abused. No, nothing like that ever happened to me. As for physical violence, he wasn't so lucky. When he was 16, he was assaulted by a group of teenagers. There were about 12 of them. They started calling me you fat poof and all this and beat the shit out of me. They only stopped when a car pulled up. It was an old woman, a pensioner, who stopped in a wee red car with her husband and she stopped because they thought I was a dog because I was on the ground. My nose was bust, my eyes black, I was cut and bruised all over. He had never seen the boys before. They were just bored. Does he think they would have killed him if the car hadn't stopped? I don't think they had the ability to stop. You just kept going because you're having fun. And before you know it, you've killed somebody or given them brain damage. I remember so vividly the guys taking turns, running and jumping on my head. And bang! They were having a great time. After that, I just stayed at home and did my homework. It ended my socialisation as a teenage kid because I was so terrified. Stuart has always suffered with anxiety and says the money raised from events to publicise Young Mungo is going to a mental health charity. How is his mental health these days? Nice journalistic segue. I'm naturally anxious, and it's an anxious time before publishing a book, but generally, I'm the happiest I've been. I feel I'm doing the work I was meant to be doing all my life. Stuart was initially reluctant to acknowledge the autobiographical nature of his work, He thought it might both undermine the fictional element and diminish his past. But now he embraces it. This is his territory. And he could happily mine it for the rest of his writing life. These characters are very close to my heart. I'm writing about me. I think my entire life's work will be about searching these wounds. I'm fascinated by belonging and families when they disintegrate. About what it means to be young and queer and working class.
what it means when you don't belong in the only place you know. What I'm always writing about is gentleness in the face of oppression. Really, I'm only writing love stories. Actually, he says, his next novel is going to be totally different. There's no brother or sister. He pauses. But there is an alcoholic mum. He splutter laughs. We head off into the night. He walks me partway to my hotel. I ask if he felt the need to escape Glasgow when he came here. No, I loved Glasgow, but I'm not sure Glasgow loved me. New York gave me a sense of distance and clarity, but also made me incredibly homesick. I don't know how you could leave your Glaswegian upbringing at the door. It's not a mild place. It's a place with a real stamped definition. So wherever I go, I am Glaswegian. As for New York, he says it has changed. When I first came, it felt like a place where creators from all over the world were coming to meet and express themselves and have fun. Now it feels like a rich person's playground. I'm trying to find somewhere to live in Glasgow so I can spend time between both because it's a source of inspiration for me and I want to see my family more. How did they react when he won the Booker? I think my sister is proud of the book, though the Booker doesn't mean anything to her. I called her to say I'd won and she was like, Oh, that's good. You know, I tried to return a top to Primark earlier on and they wouldn't take it because I'd forgot the receipt. It keeps you grounded. But two years on, busy writing the TV adaptation of Shuggy Bane, he knows just how big winning the Booker was. It's changed my life. It's changed what I do for a living. Now I feel invited to be part of a literary conversation. But what means more is the way it has changed his relationship with his home city. He tells me about the mural on the side of the Barrowland Ballroom of Shuggy dancing, accompanied by a quote from his mother Agnes. You'll not remember the city. You are too wee. But there's dancing. All kinds of dancing. Stuart can't contain his delight. Considering Glasgow inspired every word in that book, that got me. That was tears. And nobody told me it was happening till the day it happened. He takes out his phone and shows me a photograph of First Minister Nicola Sturgeon putting the finishing touches to it. When you think Glasgow has got a mural of Billy Connolly and St Mungo, and now they've also got one of Shuggy Bane. What can be fucking better? He looks me in the eye fiercely, proudly. What could be better? That was Douglas Stewart on Shuggy Bane and his tough start. Living with an alcoholic, there wasn't much I didn't see. By Simon Hattonstone. Read by Bill Petrie. We'll be back after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, those who love the small plate do so for their ability to offer variety. But the naysayers have a litany of objections, associating them with pretentiousness and feeling confused, ripped off, overwhelmed by choice, and often still hungry at the end of a meal. So, in this piece, Imogen West Knights tracks the trajectory of the communal dining experience. Read by Serena Mantegi. Happy Big Plate Day, my friend texted our group chat last Friday. After weeks of waiting caused by someone catching a certain virus, we were going to Chow Bella, an Italian restaurant in central London renowned for its big portions and even bigger vibes. The last time the three of us ate out together, last summer, we went to a small plates restaurant, almost by default. As these kinds of places had come to signify going somewhere a bit special, a bit fancy. For the purposes of this article, I'll define a small plate as anything advertised to be shared, smaller than a main but bigger than one bite of food, priced around £6 to £12. But you know what I'm talking about. You can already picture the Nordic simplicity of the earthenware plate, the pared-back decor of the restaurant, the menu featuring confrontationally blunt options such as oyster mushrooms, and nothing so gauche as a pound sign to be seen. The food was delicious, but the plates were, well, small. We drank so much, and with such insufficient ballast, that when we went back to my flat, one friend was so drunk she fell onto my television, which smashed all over the floor. So, we decided to go to Chow Bella this time, because we realised after this fun but slightly traumatic event, that although my TV got replaced, something was missing from our lives. That thing was proper-sized portions. We wanted a starter, a main and a dessert, and to feel almost uncomfortably full at the end. I realised that I hadn't eaten this way in a restaurant in a long time. Without noticing it, I had, for a good decade, been enthralled to small plates, and I was not alone. All over the country, small plates restaurants, often with short names to match, have proliferated, from Noto in Edinburgh to Poco in Bristol, Belfast's Aura to Manchester's Erst, and through almost every city in between. I asked other friends how they felt about small plates, and the strength of their feelings surprised me. Those who loved them, loved them for their variety. But the naysayers had a litany of objections, associating them with pretentiousness and feeling confused, ripped off, overwhelmed by choice and often still hungry at the end of a meal. Why am I gently sawing this croquette into three parts? My friend Lucy ranted. Another described it as the tinder of eating. Loads of choice but satisfaction by no means guaranteed. Are small plates finally falling from grace? Has Covid had an effect? And how did they become ubiquitous in the first place? 
In the 19th century, a lot of dishes would arrive on platters and you would take the bits that you wanted, says the Observer's restaurant critic Jay Rayner. Then we got to this point where the dish was plated, based on the Escoffier system of main dishes which have a piece of animal protein in the middle, then you build out from that. This didn't change in the UK for a long time, except that certain cuisines incorporating shared dishes, such as Chinese and Indian, gained popularity. Plenty of other countries have a tradition of small dishes to share. Japan has izakias, after-work bars serving snacks, and of course Spain has tapas, the antecedents of small plates. Correctly or not, most observers trace the rise of small plates in the UK to one restaurant, Russell Norman's Polpo, which opened in Soho, London in 2009. Miniature pizzas, delicate purple and white octopus salads, golden nuggets of potato and parmesan croquette based on Venetian cicchetti, or bar snacks, that Norman had fallen in love with on his many trips to the city. Punters went nuts for it, as did the industry. It's no coincidence that the popularity of small plates coincided with many restaurants no longer taking bookings. Customers could be in and out in an hour. It felt like going for a regular meal, but everything's small. It was the right trend at the right time. Post the financial crisis of 2008, people were priced out of being able to open a traditional restaurant, says food writer George Reynolds. So, you saw the boundary between bars and restaurants becoming more porous, and it felt appropriate to have something closer to a bar snack menu than a full restauranty one. Polpo wasn't chippy cheap, but it wasn't crazily expensive either. I remember being surprised by the low sticker price of some of the stuff, Reynolds says. Now, 13 years on, affordability is not something most people associate with small plates. They may have borrowed from the tapas model, but they didn't borrow its pricing. As they escaped from Polpo and on to menus nationwide, prices, and tempers, rose. Search the archive of any newspaper, this one included, for the term small plate, and you'll find plenty of articles denouncing them and requesting they go back to the dolls' houses from which they came. Writing for the New York Times in 2018, one reviewer described them as a communal dining experience in the sense that a piranha feast is communal. Critics routinely complain about having to order them, fit them on the table, look at them, eat them, everything. It became trendy to hate the trend. I ask Jonathan Nunn, editor of food newsletter Vittles, why that happened. He sees it as being more to do with food writing norms than with the dishes themselves. Restaurant criticism has historically been a form of satire, where writers reveal zany metropolitan ideas to the wider public by laughing at them. Small plates offer an easy way for the critic to lightly mock urban affectations and position themselves as not one of them, despite the fact that they obviously are, he says. But some people do have a genuine resistance to them. Some older people don't understand the concept of small plates, one server at a small plates restaurant in Margate told me. It's a lot of work, telling people that they can't have what they want, in a way that will still make them want to tip you. Rachel Hendry, 
who was general manager of a fine dining small plates restaurant in Wales before 2020, says the task of explaining small plates night after night would grind her down. I see these explanations made fun of by various food writers, but they've clearly never been on the receiving end of a furious customer who doesn't understand the rules of the game. We weren't allowed to make comparisons to tapas. One problem is that British culture isn't very hot on sharing. In a dark, festering corner of our psyche, it's not okay with us that a dinner consisting of dishes such as, say, three ravioli for a four-person table might result in someone having a marginally better time for the same portion of the bill. I call a British chef friend who no longer works in the UK. British people are control freaks, she says. For shared plates to work, you've got to be not individualistic and be able to go with the flow. They do maths for the whole meal. I can hear her Danish husband yelling in the background. This is why Brexit happened. You didn't want to share tapas with the rest of Europe. It's true. I shudder to think of how many eight-pound dishes of six perfect white beans I've sat in front of and thought, that's £1.33 per bean. But are small plates really so dreadful? Or is it that we in the UK approach these meals, and perhaps meals in restaurants generally, with the wrong mindset, one that looks for evidence of a scam? There are some who argue that you don't actually get less food than you would elsewhere by ordering, say, a starter and a main course. Many agree that the small plates model makes good financial sense for restaurants, though in that it encourages you to order more and therefore spend more. And spending a bit more, while never a comfortable prospect, might be what we need to do. Last summer, Rayner wrote a piece pointing out that most restaurants, weighed down by rents and rates, by ingredients costs inflated by the folly of Brexit, by the rutted dysfunction of the British economy, cling to financial viability by their fingertips. Too often, it is the underpaid and overworked staff who have borne the brunt. As Rayner puts it to me, we very rarely go out to eat because we're hungry. So what do we want from a restaurant? Someone else to do the work of feeding us? Somewhere nice to sit with some friends? To eat a spread of dishes we couldn't make at home? Is the food just an accompaniment for drinking? Whether we think we're being fleeced often depends on what we think we're paying for. Generally speaking, small plates work for chefs. With lots of smaller dishes, there is more room for chefs to be creative, to try out things they wouldn't want to commit to on one of five main courses. They also allow for a cheaper kitchen setup, as dishes go out to diners when they're ready rather than a table of six needing six main courses at the same time. Charlie Meller at the Laughing Heart in East London, which opened with a menu of small plates in 2016, says, I had to be sensible with a very limited budget. I didn't have money for lots of chefs and lots of sources of heat to be putting a million things out all at once. Then there's Covid. I thought the pandemic might kill off the small shared plate, but I asked two restaurateurs, James Bates of Liverpool's Marais and Brodie Mia at Top Cuvée in North London, and neither has noticed a downturn. 
Once people are dining out with friends, they feel comfortable enough to share with them, Bates says. There is hope, though, for the small plate haters. Reynolds tells me that several establishments in London, such as Black Axe Mongol and Peg, have switched to a prefix menu, a set number of courses with only a few options of each and the same price whatever you choose. The Laughing Heart has done it too, partly to guarantee turnover. And, with hindsight, Mella admits that not all food works well as a small plate. A small plate is delicately composed, and then four people grab a spoon and jump onto it. You might end up missing some key component that balances the dish. Small plates are not over, but they are evolving. In recent years, they've escaped the confines of dedicated small plates restaurants and moved onto menus elsewhere. These days, lots of places won't divide a menu into starters and mains, but instead expect you to infer the size of a plate from the price. Small plates are still there in all but name, co-opted into way of modern dining. Another development is the even smaller plate, or Pinchos-inspired, fancy snack. Most cool new restaurants worth their salt will have a dedicated snacks bit at the start of the menu, Reynolds says. Gemma Bell, a restaurant publicist, says, Even though it's not a freebie, it feels like a little treat that you're getting with your cocktail at the beginning of the meal, she says. A kofta, a gilda, skewered olive, anchovy and pepper, half a deviled egg, just enough for one mouthful, no sharing required. The greatest fallacy in trend writing is the idea that each new shift washes away what came before. Yes, with some of these small plates places, it's all too easy to imagine what an elderly relative would make of it. That, yes, it's nice to see you, but they've come all this way and only eaten two prawns and a thumb of manchego. But you don't have to go there. Small plates didn't replace restaurants with big portions and traditional menu division. All of these modes of eating can coexist. At Chow Bella, I ate aubergine parmigiana, a steaming heap of seafood pasta dumped into my bowl straight out of a greaseproof bag at the table, and a brick of tiramisu. I was full for most of the next day, and curiously fresh-faced even though the waiter left the bottle of limoncello on our table to polish off at the end. But... Did it kill my desire ever to eat another small plate as long as I live? To go forevermore without a croquette, a padron pepper, a sliver of ham hock terrine? No. There's a time and a plate for everything. That was Still Hungry? How We Fell Out of Love with Small Plates by Imogen West Knights Read by Serena Manteghi Finally, when EastEnders legend June Brown, or Doc Cotton, died this week, many people mourned the loss of the actor. In some ways, it also marks the end of an era. At one time, it wasn't unheard of for a juicy soap plotline to command tens of millions of viewers, generating hours of gossip between episodes. But, Stuart Jeffries observes, the water cooler moments have gone, and Neighbours has been given the chop. So, is there hope for the soap? Read by Bill Petrie. When Dirty Den Watts gave his alcoholic wife a present, 
in the Queen Vic on Christmas Day 1986. 30 million viewers were watching. This, Moss Sweet, then snarled at Angie, is a letter from my solicitor telling you that your husband has filed a petition for divorce. It's easy to be wise after the event, but Angie's mistake was to get drunk on the Orient Express on the way back from the couple's second honeymoon in Venice and then blab to the barman that she didn't really have only six months to live. Den naturally overheard this admission and realised that Angie had dreamed up the lie to bring her philandering husband, who had made 16-year-old Michelle Fowler pregnant, earning the enduring rage of her mum Pauline, back into something like conjugal felicity. The days when a British soap could attract more than half of the population are over. 35 years later, EastEnders is struggling with ratings. Last Christmas, the BBC soap pulled in just 2.9 million viewers, landing it in 10th place of the top 10 most-watched programmes on Christmas Day. The 40-minute episode promised two weddings and a big reveal, which turned out to be that Dottie Cotton isn't Nasty Nick's daughter, but Rocky's, but prompted disaffection on Twitter. What the hell was that? wrote one. Where were the two actual weddings? Why did not a single one of them walk down the aisle? Where was the big Nazi storyline? That was probably the most mediocre Christmas episode ever. Why did no one die? I know what you're thinking. Nazi storyline? It's not just that, for some, soaps have lost the plot. Rather, soaps have lost their place in the national discourse. When, for instance, in Coronation Street in 1998, Deirdre, Nee Hunt, later Langton, Rashid and Barlow, was jailed for fraud, while her conman lover John Lindsay walked free, the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, supported the Weatherfield One and promised to intervene. William Hague, the leader of the opposition, told the House of Commons, The nation is deeply concerned about Deirdre, conservatives as much as anyone else. As late as 2009, Barbara Windsor's Peggy Mitchell pulled a pint for the London Mayor, Boris Johnson, after a tyre on his bike was punctured outside the Queen Vic. If you have any ideas how I could help Walford, Boris oiled at Peggy. Here's my card. Not for the first time, our leader had mistaken fiction for fact. Today, such a waste of parliamentary time and stomach-churning cameos are scarcely conceivable, and not just because politicians have more important things to worry about. As the television ratings expert Stephen Price puts it, the soap's dominance of traditional TV appears to be on the wane, no longer impervious to challenge from linear opposition and losing fans to the streamers. By linear opposition, he means shows such as Bradley Walsh's Breaking Dad on ITV and BBC One's The Repair Shop. By streamers, he means the likes of Netflix and Amazon Prime and catch-up services such as BBC iPlayer and Channel 4's All 4. While TV viewing as a whole fell by 9% between 2017 and 2019, Coronation Street's audience fell by 19%, while Emmerdale's went down by 22%, and EastEnders by 37%. All soaps are ailing then, but last month, two soaps were terminated with a ruthlessness akin to the moment in Coronation Street in 1989 when Rita Fairclough's nemesis Alan Bradley was dispatched by a Blackpool tram. BBC One's Hobie City was axed after 23 years, while Channel 5 decided to stop broadcasting the 37-year-old Australian soap Neighbours, prompting its production company Fremantle 
to cancel it. Kylie Minogue, who found fame on the show as Charlene Robinson, Nee Mitchell, tweeted, We had no idea how big the show would become and how passionately viewers would take it to heart. Pure love. I can still hear Madge calling, Charlene! Minogue was recalling Neighbours' glory years. When Charlene married Scott Robinson, Jason Donovan, in 1987, nearly 20 million Britons watched. Today, the Neighbours' audience on Channel 5 averages 1.2 million. Undeniably small, but double the 600,000 who watch Hollyoaks on Channel 4. It's sad to see Neighbours go, says Phil Redmond, the creator of Brookside, Grange Hill and Hollyoaks. But the truth is the world has moved on. Television history is littered with terminated soaps, Crossroads, El Dorado, Family Affairs, Brookside. But if the acts can descend on Neighbours, a fixture on British and Australian TV for decades, perhaps no soap is safe. In response, Britain's leading TV soaps are being moved around the schedules, but that may seem as futile as relocating the deck chairs on the Titanic. Coronation Street will broadcast three-hour-long episodes on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, instead of dividing Monday and Wednesday into two separate half-hour chunks with another programme in between. Also on ITV, Emmerdale has moved from 7pm to 7.30pm Monday to Friday in order to accommodate an hour-long ITV news programme. In response, BBC One has moved EastEnders to a consistent 7.30pm time slot Mondays to Thursdays. Emmerdale is currently winning the 7.30pm ratings battle. Even as their ratings plummet though, soaps are investing in the future. Despite MPs worrying about the outlay of the licence fee, the BBC spent £87 million on a new set for EastEnders. A patch of wasteland next to the original set has been transformed into a new one, complete with replicas of the Mitchell Brothers' garage, the Beale's Fish and Chip Shop, and according to Media Watcher's decoding of drone footage, the dramatically rich juxtaposition of a mosque next to the Queen Vic. Last month, ITV announced that construction work had started on an expansion to the Coronation Street set across the Manchester Ship Canal from Media City UK in Salford. It's a testament to the confidence ITV has in the show that it is investing so much in our future, says John Whiston, the managing director of Continuing Drama and the head of ITV in the North. Mind you, I guess it won't be long before we blow it up burn it down or crash a tram into it. Are soaps still a worthwhile investment? Traditionally, they were appointment to view telly. After Larry Hagman's diabolical Texas oilman J.R. Ewan was shot in 1980, 83 million people in the US tuned in to watch the episode in which his killer was revealed. Viewers had to wait from the finale of Series 3 to the fourth episode of Series 4 to discover who done it. This sort of cliffhanger, or so you would think, is inimical to the binge-watching culture of Netflix and Amazon Prime. The drum doof-doofs marking the cliffhanger at the end of EastEnders was predicated on deferring gratification until the next episode, when viewers would learn, for instance, if Ethel ever did find her little Willie. Spoiler alert, Willie was a dog, a pug, and he usually came back. But in 2007, the Netflix executive Ted Sarandos revolutionised how we watch TV by drastically cutting the time between the cliffhanger and its resolution. The television business is based on managed dissatisfaction, Sarandas told me in 2013. You're watching a great television show you are really wrapped up in. You might get 50 minutes of watching a week 
and then 18,000 minutes of waiting until the next episode comes along. I'd rather make it all about the joy. Another problem for soaps is that the water cooler effect is no more. There never was a water cooler. It was people talking about last night's telly on the bus, nitpicks Tony Jordan, a scriptwriter and serious consultant who was for many years the driving force behind EastEnders. But the principle remains, soaps were the original FOMO. You were afraid of missing out. That's how we got audiences of upwards of 26 million. But time-shifting technologies and binge-watching don't necessarily mean viewing is no longer communal. Bo Willimon, the creator of the Netflix drama House of Cards, argues that the end of the singular common viewing experience has been replaced by smaller concentric circles of conversation. He has a point. The water cooler effect may be obsolete, but it has been replaced by virtual communities. Live tweeting your joy at the return of Ozark or your disappointment at Killing Eve's lamentable new series on a mobile device to fellow fans while watching on another screen is what communal TV looks like in the digital age. It is also simplistic to say that soaps are merely victims of streaming. They have also been beneficiaries of catch-up services. Last summer, for instance, ITV bosses decided to add weeks' worth of episodes of Coronation Street and Emmerdale to ITV Hub during the World Cup so that football fans could binge-watch between their favourite matches. It's unwise to go too far with this argument, though. Take viewing figures for the 14th to the 20th of March. The most-watched TV show was the penultimate episode of The Apprentice on BBC One, which had 6.7 million viewers, 2.1 million of whom watched, not live, but on catch-up services, notably iPlayer. By contrast, Coronation Street, that week's top-rated soap, was watched by 5.5 million viewers, only 716,000 of whom saw it on catch-up, notably ITV Hub, suggesting that soaps are more dependent on appointment-to-view main-channel telly than any other TV format. Redmond argues that soaps' main problem is not streaming multi-channel TV or the multiplication from a TV set in the living room to phones, tablets and other mobile devices. Rather, soap operas have sold their souls and thereby hastened their demise. They have spread themselves too thinly, so they are disconnected from reality. They should spend more time on scripts and developing characters. For some reason, humans just want dramatic stories. The problem is that soaps aren't providing them. It's a temptation to sensationalise, I know I've done it myself, but it's a short-term fix. Quality control is what's important, he says. Traditionally, British soap operas postured a slice-of-life telly, tackling issues such as racism, sexism, violence against women, suicide and cot death in a serious manner that you would never see in US soaps such as Dallas or Dynasty. They also help to develop ordinary Britain's political and emotional literacy, argues Jordan. When the heterosexual Mark Fowler was diagnosed as HIV positive in EastEnders in 1991, Britons, brought up by the tabloids to believe it was a gay plague, were dramatically disabused. Similarly, says Jordan, when someone got cancer and struggled with it, that may have helped some people who thought they were weak, but realised they were just struggling, as was the character on the soap. Jordan hails soap writers such as Sarah Phelps, EastEnders, and Sally Wainwright, Coronation Street, whose angry passion for such issue-based dramas made them essential viewing. When Coronation Street began in December 1960, its terraced Victorian street 
looked just like the one lived in by millions of Britons and caught the wave of kitchen sink realism generated by John Osborne in the theatre and Lindsay Anderson at the cinema. Jordan argues that soaps came into their own as Britain became socially fragmented. We needed good neighbours on TV, perhaps, because they were less likely to exist in real life. One thing that made EastEnders popular is that you wanted to live there, says Jordan. It was a community when communities were disappearing. It was a rule in the show that nobody ever said, this place is shit, I'm off to Watford or Barbados. Viewers had to want to live at number 3 Coronation Street or Albert Square. They'd fit into the community and then Watts could be their landlord. Soap's social integrity was undone in the quest for ratings. A pivotal moment came when an aeroplane crashed into Beckendale during Emmerdale's ratings grab in 1993 Christmas special. But sensational storylines need not show that a soap has lost its soul. Jordan recalls being deeply moved as a teenager as he watched a 1967 episode of Coronation Street in which a train derailed crossing the viaduct, crashing into the cobbles, trapping Ina Sharples and killing Sonia Peters. It had integrity because the community came together, he says. He contrasts that with the notorious EastEnder storyline from 2011, in which Ronnie Branning switched her dead baby with Cat Slater's newborn child, which prompted more than 9,000 complaints, many from bereaved parents objecting to its seemingly cynical sensationalism. Nine years ago, I wrote an article for The Guardian headlined Soap Operas Has the Bubble Burst? In it, I argued, soaps are like printed newspapers or the British monarchy. The only question is when will they do the equivalent of stopping the presses or making the last royal hanger-on live without taxpayer subsidy in a council flat? You will have noticed that there are still printed newspapers and that no royal, not even Prince Andrew, lives in a council flat. Perhaps, like the death of Mark Twain, their demise has been exaggerated. There's no reason why soaps can't survive, argues Jordan, but I'm not an idiot. I know that in the days when there were 30 million viewers for EastEnders, there were only four channels, and now choice is virtually unlimited. I can do the maths. But there is a place for them, and a substantial audience too, as long as they are written by and seen by people who care about the characters and their stories. That was What the Hell Was That episode? Can the Soaps Ever Win Viewers Back? by Stuart Jeffries read by Bill Petrie that's all from us this has been Weekend a Guardian podcast if you're enjoying it please make sure to like subscribe to and rate the podcast just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts this week's articles were read by Emma Stannard Bill Petrie and Serena Manteghi and presented by me Savannah Ayoade Greaves this episode was produced by Rachel Porter Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, 
you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.